I'm Verite, and you're listening to Anatomy of an Artist, a podcast about people, the art they create, and the business behind their art. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the podcast. My guest this week is Cooper Turley who's leading crypto community and tokenomics at Audius, a new streaming platform that utilizes blockchain technology and is providing new and innovative ways for artists to build their communities and interact with their fans. It's clear from our conversation that Cooper is a music fan first. He has experience managing artists and was so articulate in naming the problems artists face today and how emerging technologies can solve their problems. There is a lot to learn in this conversation, and I hope you guys enjoy. How's your day filled with a minor amount of stress? Yeah, minor, I think, is a good way of saying it, you know? (laughs) Everything was going pretty much flawlessly, and then just like, you know, 12.30 (laughs) last night, someone's like, yo... You guys just lost like a million dollars. And we're like, all right, chill. Let's do it. (laughs) Cool, cool, cool. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah, that's fucking wild. It's been a fun learning experience, though. And I mean, like the community has been super supportive and, you know, we've been talking internally about it. And so, um, yeah, it's okay. You know, I think it's like definitely unfortunate because we had a lot of cool stuff in the works. and We're going to just roll out a bunch of stuff this next week. But, you know, it's all good. And I'm just glad that the community is like behind us because the last thing we'd want is just us fighting uphill or people being pissed at us or whatnot. Yeah, it is really interesting that the whole, I mean, because it was a hack, right? hmm Yeah. It is a learning experience. It is interesting to be like, oh, it can all go away. Yeah, that's crypto for you. I mean, like, I'm pretty used <laughs> to, like, these things happening. And honestly, this one and the scale of, like, a lot of the other crypto hacks, there's been ones that have been, like, way, way worse. But I think on a social level, like, the amount of, like, humans involved with this one is probably the most relative to anywhere else because, um you know, these, these social tokens are inherently like way more community focused than your typical like DeFi shitcoin, right? Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. The, you are the first official non-musician. I figured. To come onto the podcast. And it's really interesting because the intent of this podcast was to show different sides of artists and the people who work in the periphery of artists and you're someone who has this scope of like you've been an artist manager and now you're kind of assisting artists in their community building and so I feel like you're going to have a lot of insight and like outsider perspective for artists that maybe like we're too close to our own projects to maybe see. Mm. I'd like to say so. I mean, I'm really excited and thankful to be on this. Like I said, I've been listening to this podcast a lot. And um, since I found that episode with RAC, just listened to all these episodes. So I'm really thankful to be here. Yeah, it, thank you. It makes me very happy that people actually listen to this podcast. <laughs> I, I want to start from from the very beginning because there aren't a lot of interviews about you. Like, where are you from? I usually know all of this information, but now I actually have to ask you, where are you from? Yeah, so I'm from Philadelphia, uh, born and raised in Pennsylvania, went to college out in Colorado because I fell deeply in love with music. I figured that Colorado is the best place to go for live shows. You know, Red Rocks is my favorite venue in the world. And so, you know, pretty quickly fell down that rabbit hole of just touring, going to festivals, you know, going to shows every single week, doing some DJing and just trying to figure out, you know, how I could take my love of music and turn it into somewhat of a professional career. Going to college for Red Rocks 
is very badass. I've never actually been to Red Rocks, and so mm-hmm. I'm jealous. And so you, what made you decide to go to college for music business? Was there like an experience or a favorite band that kind of drove you down that trajectory? Yeah, so I actually started out going to school for accounting. You know, like I was very passionate about music, but at that point in time, I wasn't sure if that was something that I wanted to pursue as a career, right? That was more a hobby of mine. And I think the allure of going to a college that had a really strong music focus, you know, kind of brought me out there. You know, um, where I grew up, a lot of people were going to state colleges that were kind of more inducive of like frat culture. And I knew that wasn't something that was ever for me. And so I went and visited Colorado, ended up going to see Pretty Lights at Red Rocks, you know, before I enrolled there. And, you know, at that point in time, it just seemed obvious to me that there was a culture that really supported, you know, my passions outside of my creative pursuits. And so naturally over time, you know, the more time that I spent in that music world, I realized this is something that I cared very deeply about. And so I transitioned a little bit away from like a strict business focus to, you know, trying to combine those two passions and hobbies in the form of a music business degree. At that point, and maybe even like before that point, when you were younger, what was your idea of success? It's a good question. I mean, I've always been very entrepreneurial in nature. So like, obviously, you know, the financial aspect of it was very appealing to me, just trying to make as much money as possible. I think that that was my earliest idea of success. But the deeper I got into the world, I kind of realized that the strength of your network, in my opinion, is kind of what success is. So being able to have people around you that you really care about and that support you. And um, over time, trying to expand that network to people doing meaningful things in the world. You know, I kind of view my life as trying to work with people that are making a large scale impact on the world. And if I can grow my network to support as many of those people as possible, I think that that's a successful and happy life because I have people around me that inspire me. Were you kind of comparing yourself to, you know, these bigger music managers like the Scooter Bronze of the world back in, in your kind of early college days when you were just starting? Or what did you envision your role in the music business being? Yeah, the biggest super fan ever. You know, like I really prided myself on being an early curator. Um, I found a lot of rising music. I was sharing that with my friends. I was going to every show and I always wanted to be going to like the first show that an artist I knew played. And so just, you know, being really aware of like their catalog, all the remixes that they had done, like what their backstory was. You know, I always wanted to be like most educated when it came to like discovering new and rising talent. At that point, were you starting to get into music management or were you viewing yourself more as like a curator? Definitely as a curator. I was actually was doing uh, journalism for quite a long time in college. So I would go and cover these shows, you know, get free tickets to write about the event, um, do interviews with artists, travel to festivals and do street team work and whatnot. And so for me, it was kind of like a nice way to just be able to get free tickets by writing about stuff that I was already passionate about. But, you know, underneath that, I think, um, one of the benefits was writing was I got to like really learn what these networks in the music industry looked like, right? So you see a lot of different subcultures popping up in music and being able to map out like who's friends with who, like which of these artists are closely collaborating with one another and what do these pockets look like? That was kind of like the needle that I was always trying to thread with my writing. And I guess you were kind of separate from, you know, the main coasts of the music industry, LA and New York. In Colorado, what was the music scene like and did you find that you had to move out in order to kind of become more connected and expand your network? Yeah, it's a great question. So my first um, love of Colorado's music scene was like the jam band culture. So SDS9 is my favorite band in the world. I've seen them like 50 or 60 times. Uh, Lotus is this band that I like a lot. Me and my friends would go and see them in New Year's every year in high school. 
And so like acts like that, and then kind of more like electro soul acts, like Pretty Lights, Grizz and Grammatic were kind of like the heart of, you know, Colorado music in my opinion. But um, as I kind of spent more time in the industry, I really fell in love with this genre called Future Bass. So like artists like Elenium, San Holo, you know, even Marshmallow, he was coming up. Um, there was this really amazing SoundCloud wave of electronic producers that were making super euphoric and cool music. And um, those type of sounds specifically at live events were really compelling to me. And so while I started out being kind of like a jam band head at first, I kind of quickly transitioned into being more of like a future-based trap curator and DJ that would go and see like all of these like really small electronic shows at like 100-person venues and just, you know, have an absolute blast dancing around with my friends and whatnot. I feel like the ethos of those two cultures, while, while the music is like very, very different, the ethos feels very similar to me of like there's a kind of freedom and perhaps improvisation. Well, I think you're onto something there. You know, I think that um, those communities just were really wholesome, right? And when I would go to these events, I was finding recurring people going to all these shows I was going to. You know, I could go to an event and know that I'm going to see 20 or 30 people that I knew in the crowd at all times. And like beyond the music itself, which I really loved, you know, like having a family at these events was so cool to me because like I said before, I was never into like frat culture. I wasn't really ascribing to the typical college norms. And so looking at music as sort of my vehicle to make friends and kind of expand my network, um, it allowed me to meet some really, really positive and loving people. You know, like I think over time, my um, network has changed in terms of like those people that I'm hanging out with, but I do owe a lot to like the community culture of things like Grizz family, you know, like the Elenium family and stuff like that, like these early Facebook groups, like you could really make a name for yourself just being like a super fan of an artist. And I always thought that that was really, really inspiring. So at this point, were you actively managing acts? And when did that start for you? That happened towards the end of my college career. So when I transitioned to a music business degree, I basically was figuring out where in the industry I wanted to try and um, spend my time. You know, that degree in particular sort of set you up to go into like the tour management sector, kind of intern for different companies that managed artists and routed tours and whatnot. You know, I like the ethos of working with artists, but I didn't really like kind of working my way up the chain to have to like someday work with a bigger act. So instead, I took my kind of curator roots and some of these relationships I had established through just like SoundCloud discovery and, um, you know, pivoted away from just being a curator to actually working with the artists to help them with their rollouts and kind of playing a more you know, helping hand in the the growth of their project rather than just being a fan. From a management perspective and just kind of having this peripheral view of, you know, what it's like to be an artist, what are the greatest challenges that you find artists face today? And then this kind of ties into, you know, starting to talk about crypto and social tokens and all of that. um, And I'm sure it will kind of lead us there seamlessly. Mm -hmm. I think figuring out who you really are. You know, I think that a lot of the artists that I see are incredibly talented. You know, they put so many hours into learning how to produce so many hours into, you know, figuring out what inspires them from like a reference standpoint. But, um, I see a lot of artists get stuck in figuring out like what their niche is and trying to be unique in that niche. You know, like it's really easy to go on YouTube and watch tutorials of how to recreate the biggest artist, you know, synth wave that you really love. But what we see as a result of that is that people get pigeonholed into these subgenres that are pretty limiting, you know, like in and of themselves. And so to me, the biggest challenges I saw was like one, creating a unique sound that was true to the artist. And then two, being able to be like active and embodying of that message on social media you know, I found for pretty much all of my artists that social media was a huge chore, you know, like you really had to push them to post, like they weren't really about it. And um, for better or worse, you know, like the best artists today are like really great at social media and community. 
And I think if you're an artist and you struggle with that, you're kind of always going to be fighting an uphill battle because, you know, people need to have a voice and a mission to rally around. And without that, I think it's difficult for them to really fully support and back your music. Yeah, I think that's something that I definitely struggled with in the beginning. And I think it's something that a lot of artists struggle with until they find a, a, a mode of communication that feels natural. Mm-hmm. And I think that we are given so many platforms and told to kind of perform on each and recognizing that each platform has a different algorithm. So technically to perform well on all of them, you really need to be like all of these different versions of yourself. And I think that even in this last year, you know, with this podcast, with Clubhouse, right, I've kind of come into my own of like, oh, this is just my mode of communication. Like even with the Discord server, it's like I'm really good at talking to people one-on-one and and conversing and kind of getting in deep. Like I'm not good at dancing and smiling, which is like what the TikTok algorithm wants and Mm -hmm. kind of owning that and then putting my eggs in the baskets that kind of serve me. And then if they're serving me, they're going to serve my community because I'm not sitting and putting on a face, right, to kind of pretend Yeah, it's a great point. And I think that the music industry definitely propagates trends like really hard, right? So if you're an artist, you need to be on TikTok as sort of like an idea that's perpetuated out there. And um, to your credit, I think you've done a fantastic job of finding outlets that really resonate with you, you know? I think that a lot of the artists that I worked with, they felt beholden to the Instagrams of the world, the Facebooks of the world, you know, even TikTok. And you can just kind of see that these artists try really hard to be active on there. You know, they post a lot and they're like trying to make new videos, but you can always just see behind it that they're not doing it because they love it. They're doing it because it's a necessity to stay relevant. And I think like until that artist is able to find, you know, their specific vertical that they really own and can champion, you know, it's really difficult to cut through the noise. And so um, I just want to say too, that like as an artist, I recognize that the expectations to be public on social media is definitely like not fair to a lot of artists. You know what I mean? Like, I think that as a manager, there's no expectation for me to post on social media about what I'm doing with my (laughs) life. But as an artist, it's like, no, you need to go on multiple times a week and take photo shoots and be super public with yourself. And it's a you know, it's a lot of expectations. So I say that very lightly, but um, I have found that when you find something that an artist really rallies behind and you double down on that, I think that that's where you start to see the true personality shine through. And that's really the most important part here. The listeners literally couldn't see my massive eye roll at like, you need to take all of these photo shoots of yourself every week. Cause I, I keep having, especially in quarantine, I'm like, I'm not doing anything interesting. I've been wearing the same sweatshirt for two weeks. <laughs> like you don't need to see this. Um, like there's nothing to see here. And so it's just, it is funny, but it is, it's like, then you find things that resonate. And so I, you know, I went through a period where I was like cooking on Instagram live, you know, looking like a hot mess, but you know, who's, who's really watching for that. But it is this sense of, you just have to find the moments that kind of make sense for you. But tell me about your entrance into crypto and, and kind of what was that introduction like? Totally. So I was going to school for music business. I had a class where a professor introduced the ideas of smart contracts to expedite royalty payments. And so at this point in time, I was very familiar with how the music industry worked. You know, I managed a couple artists. I saw that our payments were coming in six months uh, later than the time that they were actually played. And so when I got introduced to this idea of real-time payments programmatically with no middlemen, that immediately clicked with me. You know, at that point in time, I was like, somewhat familiar with Ethereum and Bitcoin, but didn't really know what they actually did. 
This was like late 2016, early 2017. And um, at that point in time, I was really struggling career-wise with, you know, loving music, but not seeing a clear trajectory in terms of how that inspired me. You know, the people around me were starting to treat music as way more of a business and a product than they were an art form. And that really never sat well with me. You know, to me, the music itself was always the most incredible part and the ability to make money was sort of the extra icing in the cake. And I think that I got put into a system where it was always just optimizing for the money, optimizing for the streams. And I never really resonated with that. So finding a new industry that really allowed you to be self-taught, you know, and to learn about new projects and that empowered like any skill set. You know, I, I really found a home in that. You know, like I said, I've always been very entrepreneurial. I used to sell Pokemon cards on eBay. Um, there's a lot of things I've done in my past that sort of led me into carving my own destiny. And so when I found a new industry that was very unexplored, you could go on the internet and read up on projects and become an expert. So long as you're willing to put the time in like that kind of transition to uh, a space that allowed me to better find and discover what I was passionate about felt a lot more natural to me than just sort of working my way up, up a, uh, intern chain to do something that I didn't really love in the first place. I'd like to kind of touch on smart contracts because I'm going to have you break things down like in a little more specificity, which I'm sure you do 20 times a day, uh, just just for the people listening. But can you give me an overview of the inefficiencies of the black box that, uh, you know, DSPs like Spotify, Apple and, you know, quite frankly, large companies, major labels, publishers use to kind of collect and distribute payments? Yeah, for sure. So there's a lot to break down here. I'd say from a high level, when you play a song today, that artist will likely not see any payment from that for at least three to six months on the earlier end. What's actually happening is that you're paying a subscription fee and that subscription fee is being paid pro rata to all the artists on that platform. So even if I listen to Verite's music exclusively for the whole month, my $10 a month from Spotify is not going to Verite. It's going 90%, 99% to Drake and then 0.1% to Verite, right? And so you combine both the lack of uh, direct payment channels and that inefficiency around how fast those payments happen. You know, basically payments are routed to a middleman that then goes to another middleman, that middleman takes their cuts, and then it goes back to the artist team. And then hopefully they're actually able to collect something on the back of that. You know, with smart contracts, you can basically do all of this in real time, where if I'm choosing a song, that payment is going to go directly to that artist. And there's no need for it to go to a middleman to actually account for it. That can all happen programmatically in real time so that there's no need to trust someone else to basically say that you are owed whatever amount of money that you're supposed to be owed is. Now, can you tell me about smart contracts and their relationship to Ethereum and how that kind of exchange works? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is really important because one of the thing, the major thing that separates Ethereum from Bitcoin is that Ethereum has the ability to have smart contracts. So Bitcoin is basically a store of value. You can't really do computational logic on top of it. But with Ethereum and smart contracts, you can program um, if and then logic, which means if I send Kelsey a payment, then she should receive this payment in real time. If I want to do something like um, provide money to one address, like then someone can go ahead and take that money out of another address. And so smart contracts are basically this technical layer that allows you to program how money is spent and how it's routed. And it kind of is infinitely flexible in the sense that you can take a smart contract and program it to do any number of things with any amount of money to any number of people. How far away do you think we are in the music industry from that idealism becoming like an actual reality? Because, and we can get into your work with Audius, but, you know, when you're looking at these kind of 
legacy companies, you know, they're still collecting royalties based on a system that was developed in like the 1950s. And so do you see these companies making this change or kind of do you think they benefit from that black box too much? They definitely benefit from it a lot. And I think that's the reason that it's going to be slow. If I had to give a time estimate on this, I'd say about five to 10 years until this is happening really naturally. You know, the biggest shift that we're going to need to see for that to be a reality is that all payments are going to need to happen on chain. So today, the legacy financial system does not use blockchain rails. There's not really a huge incentive for them to do so. And so in order for these things to become a reality, you know, these payments need to be happening in crypto to support the smart contract logic that allows all these cool things to happen. And so what we see today is basically a legacy system that has put up um, guardrails that also always allows them to get paid and to sort of have the lion's share of control versus what we see in Ethereum today, where it's completely community owned. Everything is public and transparent on chain. You know, there's no ability to sort of skim money off the top because everyone can see exactly where it's going. And so those incentives are a little bit misaligned. And in my opinion, when this is going to change is when there are platforms that are showing that um, artists are able to be much more efficient and that they're much happier when they're receiving payment in real time and sort of sharing those benefits with their fans. And it's my belief that as we see a gradual transition away from the incumbents of today to these more community owned ecosystems that um, it's not going to be a matter of them like wanting to opt in. They basically are going to have to opt in to be able to compete with, you know, these new micro economies that result as a, as a form of using these technologies. So tell me about Audius and, and what attracted you to that platform. Absolutely. So Audius is a decentralized streaming protocol. It's a community owned and operated network, which means that Audius as a platform is owned by its fans. This is drastically different from something like SoundCloud, where in 2013, every artist made a career off the back of their remixes and their projects, but they saw um, no upside in SoundCloud as the company. You know, SoundCloud went out and raised hundreds of millions of dollars, but as an artist that generated hundreds of millions of dollars for the platform, you didn't see any of that upside. And so what Audius wants to do is basically re-empower artists to be having a voice and a share in that network. And uh, the way that we do this is by creating direct-to-fan relationships. So what inspired me about Audius was that naturally I've been passionate about music for a long time. I've been very passionate about the opportunity for crypto and smart contracts to enter into that sphere, but I hadn't found a project before this that had you know, a meaningful sense of doing this. There were people that were trying this for quite a long time, but you know, Audius's vision and the team behind it was one that, in my opinion, gave me the confidence to actually like, execute on this on a meaningful level. And so when I was offered the opportunity to join the project to help roll out this audio token, um, to me, it became much more, it, it was much better than my typical crypto engagement, which is basically like, hey, we want to roll out X, Y, and Z. You're going to engage with us for a fixed period of time. And then after we do the thing that you, we hired you for, you know, we'll stay friends, but there's not really much more work beyond that. And so Audius to me was kind of a way to further cement my foot in the music industry and reapproach it from this um, avenue and lens of crypto that I'd learned so much about and sort of, you know, repurpose the cool, deep technical concepts to the creative people that I would always been inspired by, you know, growing up. Tell me what your technical role is at Audius. Crypto strategy is my technical role. So we have this audio platform token and any and all things that you see regarding the token is basically in my domain and ballpark. Do you put yourself out of a job often just because you're essentially hired to build something for a company like, you know, their social token, et cetera, and then you've built it and then they have it and then you like see kind of like move on to the next in a way? I would actually challenge that and say that there's never been uh, more oppor- work opportunities for me in my life. I think <laughs> that there's probably under 100 people in the world that actually understand token economic design on like a very granular level. And so for me, it's been less about 
does that project want to keep me around? It's more about, does that project have enough uh, manpower and pizzazz to keep me interested for a long period of time? I love that empowerment. That is that is the tone of a man who is in demand. <laughs> Thank you. But honestly, I mean, you know, I've talked to RAC and I've talked a lot to Blau and it's the sense of when you're building something for so long, when the the entire outside world has this skepticism and kind of doesn't believe that what you're building has value, it must feel very validating to have a lot of eyes on the movement that you've been working on tirelessly for years. Yeah, it's definitely a double-edged sword. You know, I've been talking to my friends about this stuff for the past couple of years. Most of the time, they just looked at me like I was crazy and didn't actually listen. And so this shift that's happened in the past couple of months where everyone really wants to know and is begging for your attention, it's gratifying to recognize that what you are working on is sought as valuable, but it's also, you know, to some degree, it's it's challenging, you know, because you found relationships in the space with people that have been here for four years and like saw this vision very clearly. And then all of a sudden, you know, people start making money. And it's like all these people who didn't give you the time of day before now want to be your friend and talk to you all the time. And it feels good, you know, in principle. But I think um, I've personally been trying to reflect and think about, you know, who are the acts and the artists that I can work with that actually understand this vision for more than the money to be gained from it. Because at this point in my career, you know, the money is the last thing that I care about. It's the last thing I want to optimize for. And um, we're seeing a lot of people trying to get in and try and optimize for profit and not very many people thinking about like, what does this look for me over a five-year time horizon and how it benefits my community? Can you define governance for me? Sure. So governance in its essence is the ability for anyone to contribute to the future development of a platform. So today, if there wants to be a change to Spotify or SoundCloud, this happens through a board of directors, which basically govern the future direction of the platform. With crypto networks, instead of this being handled solely by the core team, every single participant in that network can participate in that conversation, which creates this sort of overarching umbrella of governance. And so when we're looking at Audius as a platform, right, when you participate within the ecosystem of Audius, and there are obviously metrics by which you would participate, you would maybe add music, save music, curate music, create your playlists, and that kind of earns you audio tokens, correct? Mm -hmm. And those tokens represent, you know, your kind of voice in the Audius community, uh, governance over what happens to Audius, and creates a financial upside for you because of your participation within the platform. Am I correct? Yeah, you are correct. I think it's important to note that governance is a spectrum. On one end of it, you basically have really soft governance, which is a Discord poll. You do thumbs up or thumbs down. That technically is governance. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, you have full on-chain governance where people are using their tokens to execute things on-chain. And the difference between these two is that, you know, the former is really conducive to sort of a wider audience. You know, people don't understand how to vote with tokens. People don't understand what tokens are. And so giving them, you know, just a voice to say yes or no to some decision is really powerful. But this gets even more powerful when you take this to the extreme and say, hey, in order to make a meaningful change to this project, you need to have skin in the game. And that skin in the game is what allows you to present and uh, implement things that will change the direction of the future of this platform. And so, you know, governance is a, a topic that I'm very passionate about. You know, outside of Audius, I do a lot of work with teams on governance, you know, and basically um, proposal mining, which means like I will go to a team and present an idea that I think is really cool. We'll rally some support around it from the community and from developers. And should the other token holders think that it's valuable, it will get voted into the platform. And so this is something I've been doing for a very long time outside of the crypto stuff or outside of the music stuff, excuse me. And now it's interesting to think about what does a really unpacked version of that look like for 
music and for social tokens and NFTs, because I think the primitive of allowing your fans to have a real voice in what you do and the direction that you take your project is really, really powerful when done right. Well, and I also think about this in, in context of, you know, the platforms that artists and, and everyone in general kind of adds value to. And we can look at Instagram as an example, right? I post music and photos and content on Instagram, which ultimately makes Instagram money. And yes, there are ways to monetize on Instagram through advertisements, but essentially, right, all of all of the contributions we make to that platform are for the benefit of that platform, you know, to build an audience that we don't really have full access to, where essentially the algorithm decides who sees what, right? And so you're constantly having to adapt to a changing set of rules, which, you know, bars you from access to this audience that you spend so much time building. And so what I really love about this from my perspective as an artist is this idea that like, instead of me and my fans contributing to like the middlemen, right? Why wouldn't we build an ecosystem of our own where like I contribute to my fans through creating music and merchandise and touring and playing among us and doing the things that I do with them. And they participate with me in a way that actually benefits them, that gets them involved and invested within an ecosystem. And that to me is the most exciting part of like social tokens. And it goes back to your early days, you know, going to shows and recognizing that it's not really about being the most popular artist or the biggest artist. It's about like the family and community you build on the ground level. That's exactly right. And I like to use this analogy of like hat pins. You know, when I was in college, I was collecting all of these hat pins from my favorite bands and from my favorite artists. And there was this kind of like social game to like, if you had the best hat pins, you know, in the world. And um, I think that was just like the pre recipe to what we're seeing now with NFTs and community ownership, where, you know, if you're contributing value to an artist community, you should be able to capture that value moving forward. And this is one of the best things about crypto networks is that, you know, power users of networks are able to earn from that participation. Today in something like Instagram, it's very hard for you as a fan or a curator to actually get paid from the value you create. But with like all of these new systems and all these creator economies, you know, you should be rewarded from that. And I think that we're going to see a really big wave of not only artists being empowered from this, but, you know, super fans being able to make a living off of supporting their favorite artists, which is a really, really incredible movement, in my opinion. Yeah, honestly, that's wild, right? The idea that from supporting an artist that you love, you are kind of creating your own value. Yeah, I'm really interested to explore it, but I also want to talk about the skepticism because, again, I think that we take for granted that maybe we do still exist in a little bubble of knowledge mm -hmm. and understanding on all of this. And quite frankly, like I've been receiving a lot of really valid critique and thought-provoking critique. I'm really lucky that my fans are like brilliantly smart and insightful. And we have a whole channel where we literally discuss and debate all of this in like a well-moderated space. I think I've realized Twitter is not the place for nuanced discourse, right? It's, it's mm -hmm. not built for that. And so I kind of don't have these conversations there, but I really welcome people to join me on my Discord. And... 
there's a lot of discussion about NFTs kind of being a scam in the sense that why would you want to own uh what is it a jpeg why would you want to own an mp3 when i can listen to it for free on spotify and when i can copy and paste it and put it in my you know uh, as my wallpaper on my computer for free yeah so i think it's a really valid point i think that it's definitely a um switch that just flips someday like i can't really describe it any other way than that but like this notion of ownership is not something that you can really clearly define to someone um in the same way that i used to collect pokemon cards in the same way that i would collect hat pins or exclusive merchandise from artists that i really loved i think that nfts are just the natural evolution of this it's definitely a little bit harder to wrap your head around because it is digital but um the key difference here is that if you want to be able to sell that piece of work so for example that nft that you collected or that mp3 song that you collected you can't do that by just downloading it and just uploading it to a random site. Like there's on-chain data that says that Verite created this. She is the one who actually transferred ownership of it to me. And because of that, I now have the opportunity to be able to um, retransfer this at a later date to another super fan should I choose to. But beyond that, just like the sentimental connection that happens from collecting any work, honestly, it doesn't even have to be an NFT, but like, you know, artwork or collecting books or whatever it might be, you know, like I think that that's going to be something that always resonates with people. And I think that the gap now is just understanding that it's okay to collect digital items, like digital items can have scarcity. And this is kind of the first way that we've seen for that to be able to happen on a, a global scale. Yeah, I, I mean, quite frankly, I understand the skepticism because I was I was the skepticism, right? And And I say that as someone... I'm not a collector, right? I never have been. If anything, I constantly purge all of my belongings uh, to have the least amount of things possible, right? But I remember when I was talking to RAC, I kind of had this epiphany of recognizing that we live in a society and culture where like, we've accepted the valuation that these giant companies have given us of our work, right? Mm -hmm. Like I didn't decide that my music is worth 0. 0.00, you know, three to four cents a stream. That wasn't a decision I made. That was a decision that these platforms made for me. And then we're forced to not only adhere to that structure, but again, if you pay $10 to Spotify and only listen to my music, I'm not even getting that 0. 0.004 cents. Drake is. And so yep. this to me is, it's reinvigorating the value of the digital asset for people who value it. And I think that that's also mm -hmm. the key. So for instance, you collected Pokemon cards. I don't mm -hmm. care about Pokemon cards. I am not gonna buy a Pokemon card because I don't value that. And so I think it's also about individuals recognizing if you don't value, you know, this piece of artwork, this digital asset, like it's okay. I think that sometimes mm -hmm. with all of the excitement and hype, there's a bludgeoning that happens of like, but you must see it my way. And I don't really feel that way. I understand skepticism. And I really believe that it's my job as a, a cornerstone of my community. I don't want to say leader, but you know what I mean? As the person who has the password to the discord, um, <laughs> right? I have the passwords to the accounts. It's my job to create that value and to be inquisitive and say, okay, I understand that transferring value to the digital asset, it's going to take five to 10 years before this is like a, a societal norm. That being said, it's like, what value can I provide? And like, that's where I love tying 
you know, an NFT to off-chain opportunities and promises. And right, and I think if you make enough promises and you make good on those promises, you're facilitating a trust with you and your community. Yeah. And there's never been an opportunity as a super fan to have something that has future promises associated with it, right? Like you can collect a t-shirt or a sweatshirt or something like that, or maybe you buy a one-off meet and greet, but having like these lifetime super fan passes, like I think this is going to become more and more of a trend. You know, we're seeing it today with like Disclosure. They just sold their NFT that had four lifetime passes associated with it. And um, in the spirit of building community, I think that NFTs are kind of the most actionable way to do that on a global scale. Because right now, you know, especially in the absence of touring, there's not really good ways to connect directly with your fans on like a city to city basis. But NFTs allow you to just put it up on a global market and allow any of your two fans to resonate around that, you know, without you as the artist having to go on stage and saying, oh, go to my merch stand in the back. It's like someone can discover that at nine in the morning. Someone can discover that at 2 a.m. at night. You know, you don't have to be out there publicly promoting your work for a fan to resonate with that. You know, they can stumble upon it themselves. And um, in my opinion, I think that accessibility just like, is super conducive to like super fan relationships. And as someone who was a curator, you know, me being able to scour the depths of all these new artists and figure out who's leaning into new technology, like who understands this vision, like it feels very natural. And it feels like we're in like the early stages. And it's my personal belief that these early collectibles are going to hold the most value because they were released at a time when it wasn't clear, right? Like we're in an NFT bubble right now, but I don't think that this is going to be the valuations they stay at for years to come, I think we're going to go through a lot of cycles and it's going to be those really convicted super fans that are here to collect the work because they wanted to own it more so than they wanted to treat it as an investment opportunity. Yeah, but but there's a lot of information right now kind of criticizing cryptocurrency and especially NFTs as like a giant pyramid scheme. And so I'm really interested in your kind of in your reaction to that perception of what is happening now? Yeah, it's very well merited. I will say um, people have made a lot of money in crypto in the past couple of years. You know, if you were in crypto since 2018, it would be very hard for you to not have at least 10x to your portfolio. And so what we see today is that people have a lot of money. They don't want to take it out to the legacy financial system. So they want to keep it in the crypto world to support new trends. And what this looks like is people taking their you know, crypto gains and funneling it into NFTs as a means of supporting a new avenue and network. And so from that lens of sort of the similar people, you know, supporting other new people, I think it can come off as a pyramid scheme. But what I think it doesn't account for is the ethos behind these collections and behind these collectors, right? You know, if you look into any NFT community and you see the relationship between a collector and a fan and sort of like the natural support that someone who's made a lot of money wants to share that with a creative talent, that to me is drastically different than a creator wanting to, you know, just like empower themselves, right? Or not really care about who they're collecting or try and be predatory about their collection. And so again, I understand the sentiment here, but I think that if you spend a little bit of time getting to know some of these prominent collectors, you will be extremely surprised by how like well-intentioned they are and how, um, you know, forward-thinking they are and being able to allow creators to better pursue their their passions, which in my opinion is the whole reason that we're here. Yeah, it is interesting. And, and again, I think that there's a lot of good that's happening and you can kind of watch it in action. And I find that to be really inspiring. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it goes back to this notion of like creator economies, right? Being able to build an audience and a community around your work that truly loves and cares about it. That is the whole reason that any creator is successful, in my opinion. And um, I think NFTs are just one of the many mediums in which creators will be able to leverage new technology to do that moving forward. So criticism and courage, like please keep criticizing it because it challenges us as people in the industry to be better about addressing those concerns. But um 
I've been really inspired by the movement I've seen around NFTs and more specifically the um, fire that's in new creators' eyes now about finding a new and creative way to be able to monetize their work that doesn't feel like they're performing, right? You mentioned earlier having to go onto Instagram and do all these things that don't really feel natural to you just to stay relevant. And I think having something like NFTs that are really personal to you and resonate with people that have a budget to spend to support that, like if nothing else, it's just been incredible to see you know, all of these creators basically being able to take on a second life because of something as exciting as NFTs. It's adding an investable layer to something that is accessible. And it's the same with music. You can have a free Spotify subscription and you can listen to all of music for free. And I think that's a beautiful and vital thing as somebody who like couldn't afford CDs when I was growing up, right? Like I, mm-hmm. I think that is so important. And basically this is just an additional layer that if you value the digital asset and if you value you know ownership of something directly from me that is you know not merely a t-shirt right but a representation of a one-of-one exclusive yeah and i'll comment that one of the most valid criticisms today is that nft collecting is a whale's game you know if you're someone who loves an artist but you don't have the capital to expend it it's really difficult to collect nfts today you know in my opinion the next um revolution of NFTs is when you're able to mint them for $10 and have, you know, 10,000 fans collect them around the world at like $20 a pop. But today that's just not really reality. And so, um, you know, one thing to keep in mind here is that I think for a lot of these artists, it's less about them wanting to box out their true fans. I think every artist wants their true fans to participate at scale, but the systems that exist today are much more catered towards those highly scarce, highly rare assets. And I think that that's the natural first step in a very long game over the long term where people are able to participate at a much more granular level. I feel like this is obviously just such a small tip of the iceberg of, you know, the conversation of the critique of crypto. And again, I and I really love you kind of coming on and having the conversation and tackling it head on with me because I think that it's the appropriate and right thing to do when people have a concern about something that they're very passionate about. But this has been phenomenal. And I, I want to end, end kind of focusing on, and this is a quote from you, right, that we're kind of pivoting from a creator economy to an ownership economy. And, and what do you see that looking like in the next you know, year and five years and, you know, let's throw in 10 years. Yeah, I think that um, any brand or network that you support, you should be able to invest in that directly, whether you're an accredited investor or not. And I think if you're someone that goes out of your way to create value for a creator or for a network, there should be an opportunity for you to be able to capture that upside. And so how that exactly takes form, I think that's what we're all trying to figure out today with NFTs and social tokens. But this primitive of being able to earn from the value that you provide for anyone in the world you know, that system feels really conducive to empowering financial freedom, sovereignty, and the ability to pursue what you're passionate about in life. Wow, that was like a very concise fucking answer. Thanks. This has been great. I feel like I feel like this has been very educational for me personally, and I hope that people get something out of this conversation. Because again, it is the Wild West. Yeah, thank you for having me on. I mean, it's been great to just connect through this whole NFT world. And I mean, what you're doing with your community is really inspiring. I think of all the artists that I've worked with, you know, you're very much down to earth and doing this in a really meaningful way. So just to be able to come on here and speak about a lot of the topics that we talk about offline, you know, I hope that people can get some value out of this because it's definitely an ongoing conversation. (laughs) 
Anatomy of an Artist is a podcast created, recorded, and edited by me, Veritech. It was produced by Vanessa Magos with the help of Yesenia Bonilla. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.